0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Runar Bjarnason, co-creator of the Unison programming language, co-founder of Unison Computing, and co-author of the book Functional Programming in Scala. We talk about the design of the Unison language from the basics all the way through things that no other programming language in the world is doing. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, no Red, Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring. So the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com slash jobs. And now, the Unison Programming Language. All right, Runar, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you are the the co-creator of the Unison Programming Language, right?
1: Yes. So I'm one of the co-founders of Unison Computing, and we are creating the programming language.
0: So how did that get started? Like, How did you end up finding yourself... You know, working full time on making a programming language.
1: You know, it's a long, strange trip. One of my co-founders is Paul Chuzano. And he was also my co-author on the book, Functional Programming in Scala. And and so we've known each other for a while. And uh, we actually worked on a programming language before. It was called Ermine. That was an in-house language for a product that was being developed.
0: This was when you and I worked together, you must've told me about it. Cause I've definitely heard of Ermine before.
1: Yeah, Ermine is a purely functional language with record types, like polymorphic records. I even registered polymorphicrecords.com.
0: What are polymorphic records for those who aren't familiar? Like what's a cool thing you can do with polymorphic records?
1: So you can talk about data sets that have, you know, columns and rows, and you can talk about them sort of in the abstract. So you can say, like, oh, I have a column called, I have a column of some type X and another column of some type Y. And then if I combine them with a data set with a column of some type Z, then I have, you know, a data set with three columns, X, Y, and Z.
0: So for, like, record fields, this might be, like, username, email address, and, like, number of posts or something. And those might all have different types
1: yeah. And you can talk about like data sets that either do or don't have a particular column. Since it's polymorphic. You can talk about them in the abstract.
0: I always mispronounce his name because it's Dutch and I'm I, American. So I don't know how to pronounce things, but it's like Don Layen or like Dan Lyon is how <laughs> I might pronounce it. D-A-A-N-L-E-I-J-E-N. He talks about extensible records and you can do some things with them. And if they fit in with like Hindley Miller type inference, but I don't know if that's uh. Related to this, or like no relation, or
1: yeah, it's exactly the same kind of thing. So that was a fun little project that we were working on. Uh, it was an in-house programming language for a little company called Standard and Pors So this was a language that's being used in finance to replace, you know, some other janky processes that were were occurring there. So you know, we sort of got the bug of like developing programming languages from there. So Paul was always kind of like thinking about other stuff and like different language paradigms and. He had this idea, like sometime after we started writing the book, after we both left Stanford & Poor's and started writing the book, he had this idea that you could edit code directly, like using the structured editing wasn't anything new at the time. But the central idea in unison in, in Paul's mind child that later became unison was that every expression would be identified by its hash. And so you could have you know, nodes in the tree that each would have a hash, and so every sub-expression also has a hash. And so you could sort of unambiguously
0: refer to any code using the hash of its implementation. So if you wrote the same function twice and you gave it a different name, it wouldn't matter. They would still hash to the same thing if they did exactly the same thing.
1: Yeah, like if the code is literally the same, like modulo all the local names and and whatever,
0: like, if they're alpha equivalent. Okay, so so even if you, like, copy-pasted the code, the implementation, but then you renamed all the arguments or something like that, that wouldn't affect it. They would still hash to the same thing.
1: So this turned out to have really wide implications, this idea of referring to everything by hash. So it started out as an idea connected to structured editing, but then sort of gained a life of its own. The idea began to sort of grow meat on on its bones and it turned out that this would have an effect on everything from dependency management to versioning and like code hosting and like how you even talk about a code base so like your code is no longer a bunch of mutable text files it's like literally an immutable data structure that you can manipulate so he came up with this idea of like code-based editing where you would have like structured refactoring sessions for like editing your code. He was working on this idea for for a while. And then in 2018, we decided to start a company around this. And yeah, we've been working on this full time since since then.
0: So do you have any cool stories of like stuff that you're able to do with this like uh, hash-based strategy that you, know, you either couldn't do or it would be really hard to do in a traditional like text file based, you know, source control system.
1: A bunch of cool stuff that falls out of this, a bunch of cool stories that you could tell. One of the simplest ones is that, one of the simplest ideas to get is that you can trivially rename anything in your code base and it doesn't affect anything downstream. So like if I have a library that's like really popular, and I decide to rename a function that everyone's using or a data type that everyone is using, nobody's gonna notice. It's just gonna change names and it's now gonna have a different name for everybody who's downstream of me. But since the hash remains the same, all the code that depends on this is uh, going to be the same. It's more than just like renaming individual definitions or whatever. Like I could restructure my whole tree, my code tree. Like I could move definitions and under different namespaces and, you know, really restructure things. Like for instance, the base library, Unison base library, I've just done a bunch of sort of reorganization of like where things are cataloged or how they're grouped. So, oh, I'm going to move this under like a text namespace. I'm going to move all of these functions under an IO namespace or whatever. And like, nobody notices, nobody has to change any code.
0: So how does that work? Like, let's say I'm on a I don't know if this makes sense in the context of, I know you mentioned like Unison does version control differently, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm working on a branch and I've got some local changes to some stuff. And I, let's say, update this package and they rename the thing. Does that code automatically, like what I see in my editor automatically changes? Is that the idea there? Like by all the places where I was calling the function by the old name, is it now just magically using the new name? How does that work? <laughs> like what's it actually doing to make that happen? You know,
1: I have my code base, which is literally is a SQLite database, right? And so I'm editing that my side. And then I push that to some shared place, somewhere where you're pulling it from, right? So then you pull it, and what you get is the new names for all the hashes. Your code remains the same. It has all the same hashes as you did before. But now when you look at your code, it has different names and
0: like things, uh, it has different imports and things like that. So is that, like when I'm looking at that, am I do using that in like, Emacs or VS Code or Vim, or is there like a separate Unison editor that I'm looking at this in, or how does that work?
1: Yeah, you're just looking at it in your favorite text editor. There was a Unison code editor like in the early stages of the project. I think I remember seeing a demo of this. We're going to return to that at some point. That has been abandoned for now because that's not really the interesting portion of, of Unison, but there's certainly a lot of things we could do with like structured editing, but it's kind of a science project. I mean, more of a science project than like writing a whole language around hashes. So, renaming is really only one facet. I mean, it's a one story that you could tell about new things that you could do. But, like, another one, and maybe a more important one, is uh, distributed programming. So, like, the way things work now traditionally in most programming languages is that you write like microservices or You have like a message bus or, you know, remote procedure calls, I guess has kind of fallen out of fashion. But the way that things work is that you have to have like the name of something or the address of something. You have to know that it has like the right version and like, you have to know what the data that you're going to send to it has to look like. You have to know what the data that you're going to get back is going to look like. And that has to all like agree with the versions of things that you're using right now so like you end up having this microservices that that are you know implement some kind of protocol that's like defined in protobuf or some external format and like managing that can be like a complete nightmare and it's all like totally ad hoc and you know there'll be like several programmers on your team who do nothing other than like manage those formats so unison text is just a completely different approach to distributed programming. It's like you don't have to write like encoders and decoders at like the network boundary. You just have a, a unison API. You say what code you want to run and where, and then you just run it. And then deployment happens on the fly. So we do what's called just in time deployment. So you have an API that provides you with like a cluster of unison nodes, for instance. So assuming all the nodes are running unison and then you know you write your program that is like mapping and folding over a distributed sequence or whatever it's doing and talking to S3 and stuff and then you just say like okay I have this list of locations like they're abstract locations but they're going to be like ultimately some unison nodes then you say okay I want to distribute my computation using some strategy among these nodes so you don't say to the remote location I want to send this data to you at this address and get some data back. You say, hey, node, here's a hash. Run that hash for me, please. And then the node comes back and says, okay, or it says like, I don't know what that hash means. Then you say, okay, well, here's the code. Here's what it means. And then it's like, okay, let me hash that. Okay, yeah, that agrees. So let me run that right now. And then it comes back with some answer, or I mean, usually the answer will be like, oh, the data is over there go look at it rather than like returning the data, right? So it's just a completely different way of talking about distributed systems. Whereas before Unison, the distributed system is hampered by this um, limitation of programming languages that they can really only talk about what a single operating system process is doing. And then the communication has to happen using some other technology. Whereas with Unison, you can unambiguously communicate a hash to a different location. And that nothing has to agree on a version or anything like that. It's just like, you you send the hash, it's totally unambiguous. It is a, a unique and deterministic global address in this infinite address space that contains unison definitions. So it's like all of your nodes have a shared memory,
0: in a sense. So of course, the, the natural question that somebody might ask is like, well, couldn't I just do that with Python, for example? And just instead of sending a hash, just send the entire source code. Uh, or something like that, or the entire program, or I don't know, or something like that. You could implement this
1: using a like Lisp or Python or whatever, where you're like, oh, let's take this Lisp expression and just like send it over there. You run into issues with that, with like, does that location know what this code means? You know, you send the text of like, or like you send an S expression across the, the wire and say, okay, run this. But like that S expression is going to be full of symbols. And like, what do those symbols mean? Do you
0: substitute in all the symbols? So you would have to send over probably your entire repo, basically, and say like, and then at that point, you're basically back to a normal deployment. You're like, go deploy this and then run this one function, please.
1: So at some point, every location that's, uh, that's executing some code has to agree on something. Like they have to
0: agree on
1: what the code is that's going to be executed. And so the fact that you can unambiguously communicate a hash means that we're in agreement about what memory address in the global address space we're going to be looking at. You know, It's literally a long pointer to some unison definition.
0: So it sounds like from a user experience perspective, like kind of the pitch is that you don't have to... It actually reminds me a little bit of Dark. I don't know if you're familiar with dark lang. Yeah, Dark. I remember that from a couple of years ago. It's still a thing. I haven't really been following it that closely. But I know like there's a similar pitch of... We do things differently, but there's this whole laundry list of infrastructure things that you're not going to have to deal with anymore. And it sounds like you're you're taking a different approach to Dark, but fundamentally the pitch is similar in that it's like, rather than having to do this whole checklist worth of hoops to jump through to get to, to do this thing you want to do, if you buy into you know programming in this way, these things will all just work and they'll be totally reliable and hassle-free.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember... The dark people talking about incidental versus essential complexity—that's kind of like a, an animating idea—and it also rings true, you know, in Unison. It's like we—that's sort of what I think is like common between dark and Unison—is is removing all of this incidental complexity of like ad hoc protocols and uh, message formats and like dependency management and all of that kind of stuff. That's another story that you could tell about this, which is uh, is dependency management. We don't have dependency conflicts in Unison anymore.
0: Dependency conflicts. What would be an example of one of those? So
1: a dependency conflict occurs when like, for instance, in Scala, you have a dependency on a library and then you have a dependency on a different library that has also a dependency on the first library but it depends on a version of that library that is different from the one that you depend on. And then so you have a conflict because those two libraries share a namespace. And so those names are in conflict because whenever you see that name in code, you don't know which one is meant. In unison, this is just not a thing because you always refer to hashes and hashes are unambiguous. And you can have two different sort of versions. I'm doing scare quotes two different versions of a data type in play at the same time because they will just have different hashes. And so the Unison compiler will just see them as two different types and you'll just get a regular type error if you're trying to use one where another is expected. And you'll just use ordinary functions to mitigate between those two.
0: So do you try to do any like, um, I know different package managers have different philosophies about how to do this or not to do it. It sounds like what you're describing is like, let's say I don't directly depend on multiple versions of the same library, but I transitively do because some of my dependencies depend on it, et cetera. Like for in Elm, for example, Elm will say, we want to resolve it such that we have exactly one version of any given dependency anywhere. Cause like Elm's compiling to JavaScript and like payload size is really important. So, it really wants to minimize like code duplication, even if it would be correct, but it sounds like I mean for your use case, you're already sending such tiny payloads over the wire anyway because you're just sending like the the function and like whatever dependencies not, rather than like deploying the entire code base so I guess that's not as much of a concern
1: no, it's not but another reason for that is that dependencies are as finely grained as possible, so you don't have to depend on the whole library if you want like one function and a data type or something. You don't need to like bring in like the code for the whole library. You can just say, like, I want this hash and that one. I'm going to put that in my dependencies.
0: So it's, it's almost like it has the same effect as dead code elimination, but it's sort of like, rather than pulling everything in and then throwing away the things you don't need, you just only pull it in the first place, the, th- <laughs> the exact things that you want. I assume that's sort of um, transitive. Like Also, those will, if they have other dependencies that need to be pulled in, they'll be sort of pulled in behind the scenes. And
1: you can like remix libraries and stuff. Like, you know, somebody will publish this library over here, and another person will publish this other library over there. And I'm like, okay, uh, there are useful things in both of these libraries, but a lot of stuff that I don't need. Let me just remix these and take the things that I want and just publish those as a new library. And if somebody depends on your library, they'll actually just get those same definitions. Like, it's not going to be a different library in any sense. It's going to be like the exact same code It doesn't really matter which dependencies they bring in. Like, do they bring in those two that you started with or do they bring in yours? They're going to get the same definitions.
0: I don't know of anybody who's doing package management exactly like that. I do know like another common thing that people bring up is wanting to, and it sounds like you also have a trivial solution to this, is wanting to import different versions of the same package at the same time because maybe you have a chunkier code base that's using the old version you're like well i want to start using the new version but i don't have time to go back and clean up all the usages of the old one because there's a bunch of them it's in like a really nasty part of the code base so i'll say i want to import these with different names but it sounds like in your case they would just have different hashes so it wouldn't even matter that even if both versions of that package had exactly the same names the hashes are still different. So you can just completely unambiguously refer to code from either of them. They can just totally coexist. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, that's true. And they can literally have the same names in your code base. But normally, you would like namespace them. Like, oh, you know, they'll be like v1 dot whatever, and then v2 dot whatever. It's like when you're looking at your code, you want to be able to differentiate between the two. And so we have a notion of name conflicts where two different things have the same name in the code base. And we will surface that to you using the Unison Codebase Manager, which is the, the interface that you'll use most of the time to interface with your
0: codebase. So interface meaning like, so you do have this SQLite. I saw a podcast once where the interviewer, they were interviewing the guy who created it. And he actually pronounces it SQLite, like it's a mineral or something. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that
1: makes sense. I used to always call it SQL and not SQL. I thought it was dumb that people would be calling it SQL because clearly it's SQL.
0: It's not like the next movie in the series. So there's this local database and you have something that will actually check things into and, and out of that, I guess, as opposed to using the source code files as the source of truth. In fact, it almost sounds like the source code files are kind of almost like a scratch pad where they'll they'll get overwritten by the the manager if you want to like do a rename or something and then also there'll be inputs to the manager if you want to sort of like commit something Sound about right
1: the way i typically work with unison is that i will have the codebase manager in one window on half of my screen and the other half will be occupied by vim and then you know i can type in command line so the codebase manager has a command line so i can type into the command line there like I can ask to edit something or view something. And then on the other side, I'll be editing my, my Unison code, but it's very much like a scratch pad or, um, a notebook kind of workflow where I'll just have one file. I literally just use one file or one buffer when I'm writing Unison code. And I just save that buffer and whatever changes I made will get sent to UCM, the code base manager. And, uh, there I can like add it to my code base or I can like say that I want to update an existing definition or something like that. And then if I say, oh, edit this definition, it'll paste it to my scratch pad sort of automatically. So the next time when I alt tab over to my scratch file, it'll reload. And now I'll have the code for that and I can edit that. And I'll just sort of continuously push whatever code I was working on in the past just sort of down the stack. So it'll basically go into a comment at the end of my file, like everything that I've been working on before. So this, it's a pretty convenient way of, of working with, with code.
0: That sounds like a different workflow than what I'm used to, but but I can understand how it would work. I mean, essentially, instead of doing like anything to do with saving files or opening files or stuff like that, you wouldn't do that directly in Vim, you would do it in the other window. And then Vim would just become updated to reflect whatever you just asked it to do.
1: Right. If you've ever worked with Smalltalk, like, squeak or you know visual what's it called visual age visual works one of those if you've ever worked with those it's very similar the workflow
0: so changing topics a little bit so i also know that unison is maybe the biggest language that i know of that uses algebraic effects biggest in what sense? most used
1: yeah we're using abilities we're calling them abilities i guess
0: they would be called algebraic effects do you want to just like give a quick primer on, on, on what they are? Like what's what's the motivation for, for having them in the language? So one motivation for
1: having algebraic effects is that monads are super awkward to work with. So monads add a syntactic overhead to your code that makes it so that the code that's effectful sort of looks fundamentally different and has a different feel to it. It has a completely different ergonomics than sort of straight line code or a code that doesn't use any effects, pure code. That's not great. So we really wanted to remove that distinction. And so you can think of it as like monadic function application being the default in Unison. And so basically every function application is potentially monadic. You know, it can potentially have these effects. And then the type system keeps track of what effects are in play and whether or not you have like a sort of dispatched those effects with handlers. And uh, what's an example of this? Like a simple ability in the base library is uh, the ability to abort. So in something like Elm or Haskell, you'll have something like a maybe or optional uh, data type. And then if you want to execute some function that returns an optional, and now you need to like bind across that optional to get inside of what's in, in it. You know, if you want to like do further Yeah, unwrap it. Provide a default for what. What if it's none, right, or nothing, or flat map, right, or you know, do a monadic bind. Or in Haskell, you would do you know do notation to work with uh, functions that return optional values. But in Unison and with with algebraic effects or, uh, or abilities, you just have this abort ability where you call a constructor which is just called abort. And so anywhere in your in your function where you don't have a result, you just say abort. And that will basically throw an ability request to the outside context. It's very much like exception handling. So you can think of it as throwing an exception saying like abort. And then that's going to change the type of your function to have this sort of uh, curly braces on the arrow, which says that it has... Uh, that it requires the abort ability. And then the ability is provided by a handler at some point. So we have this, uh, this uh, special syntax called a handle block where you can provide a handler and you basically pattern match on the constructors of the abilities that you're trying to handle. And you can just say like, okay, handle this expression with, and then you pattern match and you say, okay, if I see an abort, here's what I wanna do.
0: So that's similar to like a try catch in, in an exception sense.
1: Yes. In fact, you can implement exception throwing, and we do implement exception throwing using abilities. So there's an ability called throw, which allows you to throw any value. And There's an ability called exception, which allows you to throw an uh, a special type called an, uh, an error.
0: So then a, a, an obvious question might be, what's the difference between algebraic effects and exceptions?
1: The Big difference between algebraic effects and exceptions is that when you catch an effect request, you can resume the program, whereas an exception will abort the, the execution of the program. So it'll when you catch an exception, it gives you the exception and you can say, oh, okay, here's what I want to do with the exception, but you cannot say, here's what I want to do with the exception and then return control to the program where it... So In uh, an ability handler in unison, you'll get two things in your handler. So in your pattern match on the handler, you'll get what ability constructor was called, what arguments were passed, so sort of as, as a single pattern, but then you'll also get a continuation of the program. So you'll get a function that you can call to resume the program where it threw. And so this will allow you to do crazy stuff like... I don't know if you've heard of delimited continuations, but delimited continuations is basically the power that you get with this. So you can do crazy stuff like go backwards and forwards in your program. You can do retries and so basically you can implement any control structure
0: at all using this time travel and stuff. That certainly sounds more powerful than exceptions. So how have you liked it in practice? I mean, now you've gotten some time to to try it out like because you've used... Like Haskell style monadic effects, you've used Scala style, just side effects or or Java, you know. Then you've used algebraic effects. Like how do you see them sort of trading off against one another?
1: There's definitely a trade-off. So the syntactic overhead is is reduced, and the sort of like cognitive overhead for the first order is reduced a lot. But we don't have higher order effects. And so you don't really get the ability to talk about like effects that like dispatch other effects. Whereas in something like Haskell, you'll be able to talk about like monad transformers in the abstract and you'll be able to talk about monad transformers that implement like base control where you can like, oh, here's a base monad and I can like return control to the base monad using this uh, combinator. So, we don't have that. The expressive power is basically equivalent to free monads.
0: Or like everything is IO, kind of. So since you don't have monad transformers, you can't like mix together like IO and reader and writer.
1: You can. So you can actually compose. That's another reason why algebraic effects are cool, is that they compose. Whereas like monads don't really compose very well, at least not in a mechanical way. This is sort of getting in the weeds. But like, in order to compose two monads into one, you need to know something about them. And so you write this data type called the monad transformer where you can like combine one monad with like an arbitrary other monad it's like okay i want to combine like the maybe monad with another one okay now i need a data type called maybe t that takes another monad as an argument but in uh algebraic effects they compose sort of side by side so you get a co-product which you basically just get a set of abilities
0: so just what all the different effects that you've done they just keep getting added to the set automatically and then you can pattern match on them in the handler, just like uh So I guess checked exceptions might be a, an analogous thing. Like the, the more of them you throw, you just keep getting piling up more and more.
1: Throws, IO exception, found exception. So it's a lot like checked exceptions in that sense. So you can, th- you can really think of algebraic effects as being checked exceptions, where you have the ability to resume the program once the
0: exception is caught. And is that something you you often do? Like, is resuming, or is it usually like, ah, we're done, bail out? Usually, you will want to resume because most ability handlers will
1: be recursive in that you know they will want to resume the program and to see like what else the program wants to do. If you're doing something like throwing an exception or aborting, you don't want to continue the program. But if you're doing something like manipulating some state, or you know asking to like generate random values or something, then You want to return, like, okay, generating a random value, you want to return the random value
0: to the program. Okay, so that that actually brings up an interesting sort of design question. So it sounds like if you've got this pattern, you probably want to use it for everything monadic. So you you would want to, for example, have maybe be an effect. And like in Haskell, you call it either, either, or in Elm or OCaml, you call it result or rust. It sounds like you would always want to do anything like that as an effect rather than as a sort of algebraic data type. Do I, do I have that right?
1: Yeah, I would say most of the time you want the effect and not the not the data type.
0: So how does that look in terms of like your um, data modeling? I mean, I guess, do, do, you, do you actually store the effects like in your data model or do you, if I want to store something that's like I've got a user and maybe they have an email address, maybe I don't. In um, Elm, I might model that using a maybe. For example, would I put the effect right in my data model, or how would that work?
1: In that case, you would definitely use a, a maybe, or we call it optional. So when you're working with data, you definitely want to use the data type. But when you're doing computations that might not return a value, then you want to use the
0: the abort. So you would just not use optional for as many things as it's used in like Elmer Haskell.
1: So yeah, it has this uh, kind of overlaid, overloaded usage in or Haskell where. You both use it for data that you might not have, like in your data model, like, oh, this is optional, you know, like an optional argument to a function or something. But the other one is like partial execution, where this function is actually undefined for this value. But in unison, you can trivially convert between the two. Like you can take any optional and turn it into a thunk that aborts, or you can take a thunk that aborts and turn it into an optional value.
0: What's the rest of the type system like? I mean, do you have like hanley miller type inference? Do you have... uh Subtypes.
1: We do have subtypes. I mean, not in the sense, not like an object-oriented sense, but like, you know, we have universally quantified types. How many ranks we got? As many, we have rank n types. All the ranks. What about the kinds? How many kinds? <laughs> All the kinds as well. We don't have a kind checker yet, so that doesn't quite work out very well. But uh, that's in the works, kind checking. I mean, we don't have like data kinds or anything like that, like, like Haskell does. And there are no, there's no... Um, dependent typing. Type system is based on a paper by Neil Krishnaswamy. And I don't remember exactly what it's called. Anyway, it's a paper by Neil Krishnaswamy. It's like a type system for polymorphic functional programming languages. Higher order polymorphism. Oh yeah, that's it's full like backwards and forwards type inference. We also have type directed name resolution.
0: Oh yeah, I remember this from like a strange loop talk. Do you want to explain what that is? When
1: you type a name in unison, you're writing a function and you use a name. In unison, you will want to, like, normally you want to do some kind of import or whatever to tell the compiler what this name means. But in unison, you normally don't have to do that because, like, it has a number of sort of ergonomic conveniences to make you not have to type in imports. And one of those is that it will look for the shortest unambiguous suffix of anything that's in your code base that matches the name you typed so if you if the thing that you typed is unambiguous suffix of the of some name in your code base, then it'll just use it as long as it type checks. Now, if it's ambiguous, it'll try to type check it, and it'll say like, "Oh, well, it must be an int, and I only have one thing in the code base that's an int so it's got to be that one.
0: So okay, so like an example of this would be let's say you were using a function like map and you have like list.map and optional.map or something like that. And they're both in scope, but you're using it on something that is a list. So it's like, oh, I bet you meant list.map because if it was optional.map, then this would be a type mismatch. So let's go with list.map. <laughs> and I seem to recall from the talk that in a lot of languages, this sounds horribly inefficient because if you have like 10 things imported, then it's every single time you compile, you know, at all of those call sites, it's going to have to look through all 10 of them. But in unison, because you've already got all of these things sort of checked in and hash-based, it kind of only has to do it once. And then it's like, oh, it's not list.map, it's this hash. And that's just what it is from then on once it's like in the UCM.
1: Yeah, that's an important difference between Unison and other languages is that you'll never have you know a million line code base that you're like compiling all at once. You'll usually have one or two definitions that you're compiling. And then you'll just add them to your code base and they're there. And then you'll get on with your work. So you really do this sort of incremental compilation. If you change some definition that a lot of stuff depends on, and that may take some time to compi- recompile all of those definitions, but all of those definitions will now be in your code base and you don't have to do any name lookup in those definitions because they all refer to hashes unambiguously. So you like don't have to do this like, type directed name resolution again,
0: even when you're recompiling. So who do you see as like the big, I don't know, audience for Unison? Like like what do you imagine like the typical Unison programmer is like wanting to use it for in terms of use cases?
1: I think there's really maybe two different kinds of people who would want to use Unison. And one of them are just people who are, like me, really fed up with programming, <laughs> where deploying software, managed dependencies, getting stuff built. Even just like starting a project in most languages is just like a little bit daunting. Maybe not daunting, but like there's a level of friction. I would really just want to remove all of that friction. That's like where Unison sits for me as a like a, a sweet spot where a lot of the friction of programming has been removed. And the other audience, I think, is people who want to do large scale distributed computations. We really have the potential of, you know, since all the nodes in your network share a global memory space where the the addresses are hashes. You really have the potential to program uh, huge networks of systems as if they were a single computer. And so you can program them simply and directly, just like you're programming your laptop, and like the user interface or the ergonomics of programming this massive global supercomputer, is no different from just like, you know, writing a little Unison program and running it in your console. And so, normally, like, that's completely delightful to like, oh, I'm tinkering with a little program and I'm running it on my laptop, like, this is great. But then, like, you come to work and you're like, you know, I just get tired thinking about it, like you're working in the salt mines of the enterprise, you know, like there are YAML files and I don't know, there's like a build process and like this, all this stuff. And I just want to, don't want to do any of that stuff. And I think that a lot of people don't want to do any of that stuff. It's like, so I'm a data analyst or something and I have like a big data set that I want to compute some stuff over. I have the program on my laptop and it works locally for a small data set for me. And now I want to like, you know, run it on like the entire history of, you know, some... Web service that's been up for twenty years or something, and now like oh I gotta go provision servers and stuff. I just don't want to do that. Instead, haha, I can just write it right. I can run my the same Unison program that I ran for the in the small. I can now run that in the cloud.
0: Right. You basically you have the same program. You just literally all you have to tell it is where to run it. Run it somewhere else instead of on my machine. It's like okay, I did it. I mean that, that's maybe a little bit of
1: difference because like you'll be working with different data types. You know, you'll be working with a distributed sequence rather than an in-memory list, for instance. But like, essentially, the program is exactly the same.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what are the trade-offs between... Like, why wouldn't I always use the distributed sequence, for example?
1: I mean, the reason why we're using like in-memory lists like this is because they're easy to work with. And, you know, they run locally on our machines and we don't have to think too hard about that. But like, what if, you know, you had this global... Distributed computer that you could program simply and directly. Like, would you ever want to work with the simple in-memory list? I don't know. Maybe not. Like, maybe there's a whole you know, like there was a whole PC revolution in like the 1980s where like we went from like, oh, you know, computers are like a thing that like exists at the office and like they're big. And what are you going to do with a computer at home? Like, what are you doing? Storing recipes? Like, I don't know. But like, it turned out that lots of people had lots of stuff to compute and they wanted to use computers and they wanted more and more powerful computers to do more and more stuff. And so maybe there's like a roof right now over, you know, this is sort of like a ceiling on what we can do with computers because we all have like these PCs that we're doing stuff on. But what if we could just like remove that, that roof? Like maybe you, you know, Richard, you have like lots of stuff that you might want to do that you don't know yet about if you had a vastly more powerful computer that you could program simply and directly. It's like at the beginning of the internet, it's like, oh, what are all these people going to say to each other? Like, what's the internet even for? It's like, well, it turns out that like, we want to be on the internet all the time.
0: Those are all excellent points. Philosophically, I actually had a much dumber question, which I was just really curious about the specific implementation of like the distributed sequence versus like an in-memory one. Like what are the differences between the data structures?
1: I mean, a distributed sequence will be sort of like a virtual list rather than like it won't be like you know a sequence of like memory cells
0: so it's got like addresses of like other nodes in it
1: the data that actually backs the distributed sequence is going to be like in different places stored in files and like maybe at any given location it'll be in like twenty thousand different files or something
0: is there any way you could get fancy and like merge the two data structures and have it be that like you've got like, I don't know, indicators in like the bits somewhere so that you can tell very quickly, like if this is a local in-memory pointer or like a, you know, like pointers have a couple of like three extra bits on like a 64-bit system you can store extra info in them. We do this for strings. This We got this from C++, but it's like a string will normally take up like 24 bytes in memory just for the, like the pointer's eight bytes and then the length is eight bytes and the capacity is eight bytes. But if the whole string happens to be less than 24 bytes, why even allocate the memory anywhere? Just use the 24 bytes you got and just stuff it in there. And you don't even have to do a heap allocation or or free it later. So we just do that. And we just have like, there's like a one little bit that indicates like, is this a short string or a big string? It's totally transparent to the user. It's just a, you know, behind the scenes optimization. And and it's pretty cool. Because then you you could really get to the point where like, literally, I'm doing what feels optimal on my local machine. But then suddenly, I want to run it on this huge thing. I don't even have to change my code. I'm just like, just go run it, right? <laughs> that's the that's the least friction of all.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I like this idea.
0: If I have one contribution to, you know, Unison Idea Space and it's that, I'll call it that a win. That's a lot of really cool stuff. So I don't know how far along in terms of like, you know, commercialization this is like, because I know you mentioned like you started a company around it. I assume you're planning to sell the like actual nodes, like the, the infrastructure that people can use to get this convenient experience. Is that like up and running or is that in the works or where are you at with that?
1: We're building it right now. And, we have something, like it does work. We are running programs on the, what we're calling Unison Cloud. We're running, running programs in the Unison Cloud and it, it works. Like it actually like distributes code among the nodes and like does stuff. It's not quite ready for like production and prime time, but we're hoping to open it up to, you know, beta testers and stuff fairly soon, sometime this year. And uh, yeah, that's the business basically. We plan to host Unison code. So you get this nice library that you just use in your code base, and then you will be able to distribute your Unison programs to our cloud without faffing about.
0: Very cool. Well, that's an exciting thing to look forward to. We actually also have a thing in Rock called abilities, but it means something totally different. What does it mean in Rock? It's like uh, type classes, kind of, but they're not higher kinded. It's like, like traits in Rust maybe is more similar.
1: Oh, that's one thing we don't have in Unison yet. We don't have type classes. We need to add either implicits or type classes or some solution.
0: So you have higher kind of polymorphism, but not ad hoc higher kind of polymorphism. What do you use it for then? Like the higher kinds? Well, I guess you don't have a kind checker yet. So maybe it's not actually used for anything yet. It's just like the type system supports it, but it's not really usable yet.
1: It's definitely less usable than it could be if we had you know, implicit passing or if we had type classes. But you, you know, we still have explicit passing. So you can still use higher kind of types for explicitly passing dictionaries, basically. For instance, like I can have a monad instance for a particular functor, but that'll just be an ordinary unison value and I can pass that to my function, but I have to do it manually. Like I have to carry that around everywhere. So it's a lot less convenient than it could be.
0: But that's coming later. Rock monomorphizes so we, uh, we don't do any dictionary passing which has its own set of trade-offs. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's really nice to catch up and uh, and hear about Unison. It sounds like a lot of really exciting progress. And
1: yeah, I had no idea Unison was so cool. When you got me talking about it, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the past couple of years.
0: Well, now everybody listening will also know how cool Unison is. So if people want to learn more, uh, it's unison.org, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it's unison-lang.org. Awesome. Well, you, Unison, check it out. Runar, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking to me about all this. This is great. Yeah, thank you for
1: having me.